We are tonight's entertainment. You can't handle the truth. The fire rises. Pizza time. You're a wizard, Harry. So it be. You know how much I sacrifice? You think that's air you're breathing? Groovy. I don't have friends. I got family. We Services. Hi, Parth. Hey, Trent. We um just let the sillies out. You're looking well. Thank you. Just gonna go past the we let the sillies out comment. We did. We made a bunch of like funny like pre-show pre-show jitters noises like you do before like a Broadway performance where you're like Susie sang Sus, you know, where you like do like a that's what they say. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure they do a better job of. saying um alliterations um but we have a film podcast ty that we do and trent may i say how wonderful it is to have you for an intro thank you i mean you get me for every intro i don't know why you seem surprised not not for the um wonka intros oh god forbid uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, well no, i mean, I just i'm I just mean, saying because i've recorded a few intros without you now and how's fitting given that you know that our history around the wonka interview and the fact that you didn't invite me like just for fun well i didn't not invite you you were invited the whole time but um uh it's 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 really awkward having to do an intro by yourself i'm I'm reminded of the fact that you did an entire muppets ranking video or uh, episode all by yourself yeah i think about the fact that that happens sometimes and i don't envy anyone who has ever listened to it um yeah let's let's just say for a couple reasons i wasn't in the best place when recording the muppet solo pod and the results are as follows (laughs) yeah anyways um trent what have you been eating i figured you'd ask me this question um so nothing yet today no Uh, so so cheat code last night i made um it was scarce, and uh, all I, I stole some of my roommate. I stole two of my roommates' eggs, no. and then I, I made like an egg and cheese um, on some bread, and then there was no ketchup, which was like brutal, and then there was no pepper, which was brutal, and so I just like put some spices on there. But it was like late at night, and I was desperate. So it seems like it should have done the trick for a it, late it, night snack. It did the trick for a late night snack. Th- thank you, Parth, and you. Uh, Trent, like you, I have not technically eaten anything this morning, but I have my dad and I uh, every weekend um, uh, my dad makes uh, chai for himself and the family and I'll have a glass. What a treat. That sounds yeah, right. Delectable. Uh, well, it's a it's a Marate family thing that's like, oh, it's Saturday and Sunday. Like my dad will make some tea and then we'll like chat for an hour or something like that, um, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah. And I feel like when I was in like high school for a while, I was like, I don't want to fucking do that shit. Um, and now that I'm 22, I'm like, no, this is nice. Yeah. You know what I it's mean? It's like they're playing like the Barbie dance sequence. And that's like what Saturday, Sunday morning chai looks like with you now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've never considered it in those terms, but I guess. Sure. Yeah. I saw. um a like brief flicker of a Instagram reel today that Barbie of Barbie being adapted into a high school play or a musical rather. Mm. Cool. Right. How wonderful. What's more wonderful is this intro. I'm about to cue. Yep. Did you like that? 
Yeah, that wasn't going anywhere fast. I think now I'm going to put the intro music. That, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, cool. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week, Trent, who are we talking with? This week, we are talking with the composer, Richard Reed Perry, um, who I believe, Parth, remind of me. What? didn't Oh, of uh, The Iron Claw and such other films as The Nest and Eileen. And remind me, Parth. Didn't we have a delightful little chat? We did have a delightful little chat. Um, it had been a while, I feel like, since you and I had done an interview. Um, had, to not, had to knock the old rust off. Yeah, seriously. And our sort of like post-Wonka disdain for each other off as well. They were iron and we were rust. Because the, the iron claw. Are we referencing Rust, the Alec Baldwin film for which he is currently indicted for involuntary manslaughter? Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I meant. We were knocking the rust off, but yeah, fair enough. Will that movie come to fruition? It it did. I think it resumed filming. Um, so you know, Does, not not to sully our really good interview with Richard Reed Perry with this horrible, horrible news and horrible incident, and not to make light of it at all. But um, no, just did. I, I I think people should listen to this interview, you know, to se- as a celebration of life. Um. And not well. This is going nowhere good <laughs> fast. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, Richard Reed Perry. He talks about getting involved with music, with the music industry. Um, he's also a member of the band Arcade Fire. Yes, part of the, you said that was such uh, indecision. But I, granted, I only learned it like halfway through the interview. But yes, it seems we were like, how did you? Uh, get involved with music and he was like oh isn't well, that isn't that I, obvious I knew he was part of the band uh arcade fire but i i wanted i i didn't know whether it'd be like he doesn't want to talk about that because now he's a film composer or like what the sure. deal was there so i figured i would let him play it out on his own terms but uh we do sound like a little bozo like in the interview when we ask about it yes uh, not that we don't sound very bozo like generally bozo like at any given time sure um but at that point especially so yeah parth we should start doing this where before every interview we give like a trend parth bozo warning and we're gonna wow. say here are the key moments where we're bozos sorry we're acknowledging them we know what we did we whenever whenever we say anything that we're like this might be stupid we should just be like okay bozo warning incoming but like um <laughs> we, we can ring the bozo alarm yeah the the bozo bell yeah um, <laughs> oh the bozo bell that's good um but you know who's not a bozo trent if you had to make a guess who was not a bozo in this interview by process of elimination i'm gonna <laughs> go with uh composer richard reed perry yeah who's worked um, on such films as the iron claw eileen <laughs> and the nest <laughs> And the uh, Iron Claw um, score is um, awesome. Just fun. yeah, it is very just, good. Just fun note for anyone who likes this listening. Is, to this is our score. Film third scores. composer, but second composer for like a film, right? Yeah, because of course we had trailer composer Richie Cohan, and then of which part? The speaking of interviews, where I was not. It was present. done alone. Yeah, 
Um, and then, of course, we had Disaster Piece on for uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Which is one now. of my favorite interviews. I really, I love that score. And, um, yeah. But for me, recency bias. Um, mm, I see where you're going. You're, you're really you know, trying to, like, entice the audience with the new product. Because part of you can't be, like... It's like, why go for the iPhone 13 when the iPhone 14 is coming out, you know? You can't speak too fondly of a different episode right before this one's really about to kick into high gear. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, speaking of kicking into high gear, why don't we cue the interview so the listeners can finally listen to it? How does that sound to you? Oh, I was already projecting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Richard Reed Perry. He's worked on such films as The Nest, Eileen, and our film for today, Sean Durkin's The Iron Claw. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just to start off, we ask all of our guests this. Uh, what was your relationship with film like at a young age? I did not have a TV growing up until I was a teenager. So my relationship with film... And we didn't go to a lot of movies. I lived in a bit of a pop culture vacuum, um, and mm. movies were an occasional thing that happened, you know, at other people's houses on sleepovers or um, rare occasions. My family would go out to the cinema. Um, so yeah, so I wasn't like inundated with films, and I wasn't uh, one of those kids who you know gets to use the tv as a babysitter um or what have you so probably i saw a lot less films than a lot of people my age at that time um but you know it's kind of staple stuff i would have seen um you know star wars and et and all such things kind of mega mega flicks of that of that time um growing up in the early 80s um and at a certain point when I was in high school, this is once I had a TV, I, um, just just about to go into high school, I guess, I, I remember seeing Edward Scissorhands in a cinema. This was like a rare trip to the cinema as a, as a family that we made. Um, and if we were, I think we were like visit on, on a road trip visiting family or something. We were in some small town in a kind of a small cinema inside Edward Scissorhands. And that completely blew something open for me. Um mostly i mean the whole story is such a genius story and so so you know exquisitely pulled off but the music it's like one of the most music forward films that wasn't like you know um wasn't like a superhero movie or a star wars like adventure kind of thing and yet it was like the the movie was as much of a main character and main driver of the film as anything um and that made a huge impression on me and really stuck with me. And um, when CDs came out, that was one of the first CDs that I remember buying as a teenager. And uh, and I remember coming coming home one day and listening to that and just it, it kind of like that that soundtrack and that film kind of haunted haunted my young romantic teenage dreams. Um, and I remember coming home one day and listening to it and just it like re- just reducing me to tears and uh, my mom being in the kitchen and being like, oh, what are you upset about? And I was like, oh, I just want to be able to make something this beautiful in life. 
Um, I was, I was, that's kind of like the first, the first thing I remember about like aspiring towards doing this kind of work, um, which I guess is more, <laughs> more than, more of an answer than you asked for. But there we are. No, it's awesome. Just a quick note: is Edward Scissorhands um, affected me very much in a different way? Is that it was the number one film in my childhood that like haunted me and gave me nightmares, and I was convinced he lived in my crawl space. Um, but it's funny because after all these years, I watched it again, and he's the protagonist, and he's like a pretty—he's oh, yeah. a pretty nice guy. Um, yeah. But as a kid, just like a few images like stuck in my mind, and I was convinced he—he, he, you know, he—he's—he can be—he's coming he, for you. He brought me to tears in a different way. Um, I mean, it's kind of that—that that first five minutes is kind of like for a for a kid, it's like it's pretty scary, and then it turns into oh my god, he's this. I—I I don't think as a kid you can necessarily even relate to him that much, right? It's—it's it's much more like what he his character what he what it touches and what's so genius about it is kind of a part of ourselves that doesn't really come out until we're a teenager i think he does kill the boyfriend but he is like scissors for hands it's like it's an accident no okay. no she winona Ryder kills the boyfriend oh no he does you're right you're right he well, kills he, the boyfriend and she she pretends she killed him that's right um <laughs> I well i haven't seen the movie so oh, yeah, this part, is all very interesting part you should um, oh yeah, get in there. Uh, and uh, I could talk about Edward Scissorhands all day, but moving forward. Um, and what was your path to? I'm sure the path of a movie composer is a very unique one. And if you could tell us a little bit of how you started getting underway, or in what your first steps in that path were. Yeah, I mean, I have not had the typical path, obviously, because I kind of. I kind of came in a side side entrance, um, having been uh, in a band or multiple bands, but one one really well known band um, for many years, and kind of coming to it um, via that, you know. Um, but actually, I didn't come to film composing via the band. That was just kind of the the thing that people know me for primarily. Um, but the the actual road in, or like the kind of specific door that opened was Sean Durkin um, approached me like in in 2015 I think because um, he was really taken with a, a record that I released called Music for Heart and Breath that's kind of a um, like a kind of minimalist chamber like modern chamber music record really really delicate thing um, and he was really obsessed with that record and apparently like listened to it just on on repeat the entire time that he was writing the nest and so when he was getting to the end of that process he just got a hold of me i don't even remember how um somehow over the internet and um was just asked me if i would score his film um and i was like oh yeah this is something i've always wanted to do absolutely like hit me up when you have a movie um which he did and that that was like the first real beginning of it. But, but in university, when I was in university, like um, scoring films, like, as I said, like as a teenager, it's just something that kind of got into, got into me via that, that, that film, um, Edward Scissorhands. And also like Blade Runner made a huge impact on me as a teenager. I remember my dad showing me that film um, and that being something that really stuck in my, in my brain musically uh, as well as, as a, as a film. Um, and in university, I I, uh, I started another band that still exists, uh, a little much much less well known than Arcade Fire, called Bell Orchestra, and I kind of started that ensemble with the 
intent of scoring things, live scoring things. And, and it started primarily with dance. And so we we're kind of making music for, for live dance shows, contemporary dance shows. Um, and so spending lots of time in dance studios with choreographers and dancers and kind of scoring action in various ways or really not even, you know, not even really scoring necessarily more just like making music in the presence of something else and knowing that the music is going to somehow be animating an animating force in this, in this performance. Um, and started doing that and had this interest in scoring films signed up for like a, for like a sound, a sound, sound tracking animated films course that actually ended up being a terrible course, but it kind of just put me in a studio and, and uh, let me, you know, follow my own nose and left me to my own devices to try and score something and a little animated short. Um, and did a couple of live things with uh, with Bell Orchest. Uh, we would we would do things where we you could uh, in in Canada we have this thing called the National Film Board uh, that you may or may not know about. Um, that's just like this amazing library of of films and filmmakers that uh, have been sort of government funded for decades. Um, and you can always you can basically always borrow those films <laughs> for, for free. Uh, and when I was in university, you could like, you could go, you could like order whatever those films you want. And they were actual films. Like they'd arrive as like 16 millimeter films. Um, and you could order them like f- through the library system and they would just show up for you to borrow and screen. And, uh, and we did a couple events um, where we, we got those films muted the soundtracks and then performed live with those films playing in a cinema and just did, did a handful of, of live performances like that. Um, just, you know, as kind of an experimental thing. And there's a, there's, there was a lot of that kind of thing happening in Montreal at the time. Um, you know, you like a kind of a, a pretty active improv experimental music scene. And so I was involved in at nights here and there where you'd be live scoring improv, live scoring a film and this kind of thing. Um, and at a certain point, a guy that I knew who was making an, a film for the National Film Board asked me to make some music for it, which I did on my own and with him. And that was just kind of, it wasn't like scoring to picture most. Well, I guess it actually was, now that I think about it. It was more just like, can you make me a, a piece of music for this scene and for this scene and for this scene? This is what's happening. In them. But I didn't have the scenes in front of me um, until the very end. Um, and that was kind of my first official gig where it was like, he was like, I've got 500 bucks for you. Like, can you make me, I forget how many pieces of music it was, um, but a handful of pieces of music. And I was like super stoked about that. That felt like the most legitimate piece of work that I'd ever done. And it was kind of like, felt like I was on the path to something that I wanted to be on the path towards. And then, yeah, flash forward to 2015, and <laughs> I'm in a famous rock band, and I've made a solo record, and Sean Durkin approaches me, and that was like my first actual, you know, this is a legit feature film, and going to have a real release, and all of it. Cool. So, um, I guess, moving forward to, like, the Iron Claw specifically, did you have any knowledge of 
the Von Erics prior to being approached to work on the movie? I didn't really know the family story. I wasn't familiar with it. I had knowledge in that I had been briefly as a young teenager, like or maybe 12, 12 or 13, when we got a TV, there was a brief period where I kind of had a wrestling phase um, that most most other young lads I knew had a little earlier than that, but I had not had a TV growing up. So um, it was a little latent latent in my development as a wrestling fan but you know carrie von eric was still was wrestling as as a under the name the texas tornado um and that happened like that was i remember watching lots of his matches while i was while i was into wrestling um so that was my kind of and i was i was really into wwf i would i would watch it every week um on saturdays for a while uh so that was kind of my exposure to it having you know just had a a genuine relationship to the, the weird spectacle that is WWF as a, as a bit of a fan um, and seeing him wrestle. So it wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of the whole, the whole spooky, sad story um, of the family. But, um, but when Sean asked me, you know, Sean, Sean asked me while we were still working on the nest, cause we were having a really good time working on that together. And uh, he was like, do you want to do my next one? It's about wrestlers. <laughs> and I was like, Oh hell yeah. Like that, that's actually bizarrely up my alley. Are you asked to start composing things like before there's a cut to look at for reference? Uh, I wasn't specifically asked to, but uh, on the iron claw, but I had, I had read the script way in advance of them going into production and I did start working on it way in advance of them shooting. I just started banging out ideas, and I and I kind of had this intuition about that there needed to be a song that uh, that was sort of part of the score. And my idea about what role that would play was fairly close to what it ended up being, um, in in part. Like it, Sean had obviously had his own vision and. Um, but I kind of, I, I, I kind of thought there could be a song, you know, you have all these young lads, there could be a song that's kind of like, a, a plays a role of being a little bit of an interior emotional monologue for one of them. So like maybe one of them's walking around. And I, in, in my head, it was like, it would be Kevin, who's the oldest brother, it's Zach, Zach Efron in the film. Because um, he's the one, you know, we spend the most time really getting inside of his his head and his, his emotional reality. Um, and I thought, Oh, if he's, you know, walking around, there could be like a song that's kind of reoccurring. That's, that's telling some kind of an emotional story. Um, and that turned into it being Mike, uh, and it, um, him being the, the young, the young artistic kid and him having an actual band. And we actually hear the song in the movie, but anyway, the, the idea for the song came to me kind of, early on before they had shot. Um, and then I, I'd started banging out ideas, just kind of a lot more like rock, rock song ideas early on, way before they had shot and sending them along and um, thinking that the soundtrack was going to be way more seventies rock vibes than it ended up being in terms of the score. There's obviously some, some actual seventies rock songs in there. Um, and I thought, oh, it'd be cool to write a song that fits in with the songs. I knew that that 
Don't Fear the Reaper was going to be in the soundtrack, and I knew that Tom Sawyer was going to be in the soundtrack, the Rush song, because it was their actual walk-on music, Von Erich Brothers, when they were wrestling. Um, and so that was like a, you know, a, a clear framework to work within. It was like, oh, there are going to be these songs. It would be cool to sneak in a song, like try and write something that sneaks in and becomes score and can sit kind of side by side with those songs and feel like, you know, feel like it's of that era and actually a, a real legit kind of radio rock song from that time, which is what we, that was kind of what we aimed for when we were writing and recording that song. Um, and yeah. And then, and, and when Sean heard it, he, he just kind of freaked out right away. He was like, Oh my God, we have to, we have to build this into the film. We have to, they have to play it. They have to play it live. My test, this has to be what he's, what he's doing. Um, and, uh, so we did, they, they did that and I, you know, top, top, this, top, the top, um, Stanley, the actor who plays Mike and, uh, how to, how to play it. And, you know, made a bunch of like kind of YouTube tutorial type videos for everyone to learn all the parts for the song. Uh, cause previously it had been me playing everything and, um, they all learned it and obviously did it in a live real, not, not a lip sync kind of way. They did a real actual house party performance of it. Um, so it ended up, and then it ends up being, it does end up being this kind of, not an interior monologue exactly, but kind of a, you know, there's a bit of a voiceover quality to how it gets used later in the, in the film as he's kind of unraveling and, and heading to his untimely demise. Um, so it, it, it did end up having kind of the exact, the exact, uh, kind of playing the exact kind of role that I, that I intuitively imagined there might be room for initially in the film so when it comes to the actual like score elements um you're talking a little bit about having them lead into the the songs that were are like going to be pre-put into the movie um uh, can you talk about sort of what uh, how you compose those what instruments you're using like um sort of take us through that process of actually like making that music for the movie yeah, as I say, it started with thinking it was going to be real rocky. Um, I mean, rock, <laughs> rock-ish, <laughs> not rocky. Um, I, ironically, it is a little, a little bit rocky related. Um, but Sean didn't give me any. Sean blessedly doesn't use much of anything in the way of like temp music when he's when he's editing and building up the thing. He likes to leave it be a real blank slate and likes to um, give me or whatever composer he'd be working with um more of a carte blanche to to delve into the kind of unconscious and um you know the, the kind of blank blank slate of the thing and see what you can find rather than have it all be predetermined by you know pre-existing idioms or whatever um so yeah he just let me kind of explore and then as he would have ideas he would sort of feed them to me uh and so the first thing that he said early on was just like big drums. Um, and so I started, I started, and then he had this playlist of music he'd been listening to while he was writing it, which was all kind of seventies rock, rock tunes. Um, and so I was like, okay, we're doing a rock soundtrack. This is going to be fun. And started writing all these kind of vaguely classic rock type of pieces of music. And I was just kind of banging those out, uh, 
sometimes on my own, just playing drums and guitar and knocking out loads of ideas. And sometimes with my, my studio mate, um, who, who is Pietro Amato, who produced and, and mixed the whole score um, and, and actually kind of co-writes um, some of the music with me. Um, and so we would also just the two of us, we would just kind of jam out together and bang out loads of ideas. And, and I thought from, from the start, like, okay, big drums is the directive, you know, the very, very minimalist directive so far. Um, I think that French horn actually, which is what Pietro plays would actually be a great side, you know, a great, uh, second instrument like if we go kind of heavy guitars and heavy drums and then big horns that actually you're already kind of in the arena you're already like in the ring with this kind of um you know this this instrument that is equal parts kind of mighty and and uplifting and and kind of regal and big and strong as well as it's quite lonesome and kind of forlorn and has a far away kind of lonely quality to it as well, depending on how you use it. Uh, and that, that immediately sat for me as like an aesthetic that would probably work really well, combining these kind of rock ideas with, with a kind of a wall of wall of brass. Um, and that is basically what it ended up being it was kind of double bass, which is my, my instrument and a lot of French horn, a lot of double bass, a lot of French horns and drums and then occasional guitars. Um, and then sort of late, much later on in the process, we added uh, a little bit of other strings, higher string instruments and a bit of, a little bit of piano. Um, but try to keep it in this kind of dark, low instruments, thick kind of muscly, muscly drums and this kind of wall of, of French horns and, um, and double basses. Um, and yeah, but as we went, it was like, it started to be fairly clear once we were actually composing with picture that it wasn't going to be all kind of rock and roll energy. It needed to be something else that was a little more mysterious, a little more claustrophobic and speaking to the, speaking to the, the Sean was really clear from fairly early on. Um, once there was actually a, a cut that, there needed to, we needed a curse theme. We needed something that felt like it was kind of chasing the family and, you know, a kind of nebulous cloud that was kind of dark and relentless. And, um, and so that was the first thing that we worked on that was concrete after the song was written. Cause the song was written early on. Um, and then, as I say, they, they really built sections of the film around it when they shot. Um, and then once we had picture, was like, all right, let's let's find what this curse theme could be, and we kind of worked on that for a long time and generated a lot of musical ideas, and weren't ever sure what was really what the, what the curse theme actually was. We were just kind of working in a in a nebulous pile of ideas that felt like they were related to a curse or a curse theme, um, and then eventually. Uh, found the the thing that that's the opening music of the film when you see fritz in the ring um kind of in the in the 60s like throwback and and because it starts with that it starts like in a different era it starts with the dad wrestling in his in his heyday um it was we knew that it needed to feel kind of older the music needed to feel a little more like classic cinema maybe of that era maybe of you know maybe music that you would have heard in the 60s um 
when when he was wrestling or in the 50s um so that was kind of what we where we started um thematically and and then you know a couple of ideas from the initial pile of rock and roll ideas stuck and became kind of connected to whenever there's actual fighting happening in the ring and those and you kind of get introduced to those early on and uh, and then the more we worked on it also Sean started to feel like actually we need more sadness we need some like really s- intimate small sad ideas because the more that they worked on the edit of the film the kind of scope of the of the all the different story plot lines that they were working on started to narrow a bit where they you know they start eliminating elements that start to seem extraneous that when you when they when he wrote the movie seemed like oh these these you know it has these multiple focal points and these multiple stories and he was really telling he was really it was really a lot more focused on fritz the father early on in the edit and it's wild how these things change over the course of an edit where it's like you kind of you get a little bit of that in the Iron Claw, but it doesn't spend that much time on Fritz. Um, and, um, and so they're, you know, kind of, um, our role or like the, not our role, but our, our goal kind of changes as we go along where it's like, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to paint a certain story, paint a certain picture and tell a certain story when you start. And then actually the movie, you know, you just have to go with what works and, and, and the movie starts to reject certain things and accept other things just intuitively. It starts to be like, Oh, actually we have to get rid of all this stuff. And, you know, this flavor of music is good for a minute, but we can't actually stick with that. It's just not working. It's just not sticking to the thing and connecting. So, you know, the, the, the movie itself kind of guides you and, and, um, Sean, you know, the, the way that the story changes for Sean in the edit um, guides you a lot. Also, he starts to realize, oh, we, we need these other elements and we can't we can't be going quite in the direction that we thought we were going. And that changed pretty dramatically as we went along. Um, so, so, you know, you adapt and you pivot and you end up arriving at the final thing, which is kind of an amalgamation of all the different angles that we were that we were trying for while we were working Um which I guess is exactly as it should be. Parth, that interview was... Well, that was just part one, I believe, right? It was, yes. Well, I went into this thinking maybe this would be a single part interview, and then we managed to... It's like a 50-minute long interview or something like that. Great. So the gang, us, Richard Reed Perry, the audience, you, the listener, we'll all meet back here next week, right? That's that is the idea. Um, we'll be here next week um, with part two. He talks a little bit more about working on the Iron Claw, and then also talks about some other some other works of art he's ta- he's worked on. In part that was like your beekeeper Jason Statham voice. I'm the beekeeper. It's a megalodon. <laughs> that, that that's him in um the Meg. It's, it's or the Meg two, the trench. It's the Meg two, the trench. Yeah. It's the megalodon from the Meg two, the trench. <laughs> it's the bee from the beekeeper. Yeah, there's only one bee. It's Part- the bees from the beekeeper. All right, this joke has been thoroughly run into the ground. Let's move on with some new content. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, how about the new content being you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or frankly, all this sounds good podcast. to me. Yeah, okay, I'm glad. Um, Parth approves this message. And then also, uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter, Craft Services Podcast. Hey-o. Oh, Ayo, Parth approves that message too. Um, <laughs> Trent, okay. why are you so disdainful of, of all my like touches no, of flourishes? I like your like, ad living. You're like one of the members of Migos. You're like, Grandma, you know? How okay, they like... well, I mean, that's the first time I've been compared to a member of Migos, but I guess um, that's cool. Um, they won't be the last. Oh, that's more interesting. Um, if... But yeah, you can check us out on all your podcasting platforms, check us out on our social media, and as always, check us out every week on Sundays. Uh, Sunday, next... Sunday, Sunday! Next week, we're talk- it's part two, and then Trent. We can't exactly say what's coming up next, but um, as of yesterday, I've told you of some pretty freaking cool people that are going to be coming on. Cool people on our yeah. show? Yeah, seriously. Um, cool. And we'll be able to reveal that next week. Yeah, we should have like a uh, a cool cool guy cowbell. We'll work on it. Ding, 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 ding. Wait, yeah. But it's it's going to have to have a very different sound from the bozo bell. Part I see the predicament. How about like we, the, we, the, we we'll workshop this next week? Yeah, like it'll be like dong 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 dong. Like that's the bozo bell. But the ding ding ding, like high high pitched is. It, we just need to think of like some sort of ringing device that starts with the word C. We can do cool, cool Kong, cool Kong. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> this is going. Okay, okay, we need to stop. Okay. No, no, this is all good. Uh, uh, see, see you guys next week, guys. Uh, goodbye.